Hello, everyone, and welcome to In the Spotlight, Goodspeed Musicals podcast, where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I am one of your hosts, Michael Fling, here on the artistic staff at Goodspeed, and I'm so pleased to be joined by my favorite Jellicle cat, who I think deserves to be reborn, Annika Chapin, Goodspeed's other artistic associate and resident dramaturg. Hi, Annika. Hi. Definitely send me up an attire to some ill-defined heaven where cats go. I'm into it. Listen, I you gotta take this show for what it is. It is what it is. You're either into it or you're not, and I think we are both into it. Yes, although it's been really a journey uh, for me. I've had a much more of a relationship with the show than I ever thought I would have, um, and I've come to have some great respect for it. So that's what I will say. I'm not a super fan, but I'm kind of fascinated by it. So in case for some reason our audience hasn't already guessed what show we're talking about, why don't you remind us of the clue that we had for what musical we'll be putting in the spotlight? Of course. Well, the teaser was that the original production of this show used over 3,000 pounds of yak hair. And of course, that would be for the furry wigs that are worn by the entire cast of the musical Cats. With music by Andrew Lloyd Webber based on Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats by T.S. Eliot. And additional material written by Trevor Nunn and Richard Stilgo. And now it's time for the speed test. Hudson's Floor Wax doesn't matter. 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 Where I'm going to do my best to name as many of the cats in Cats as I possibly can. A caveat to uh, the real big Cats fans, I am not going to be remotely good at naming the cats that aren't actually, their names aren't ever said within the course of the lyrics of this piece. So uh, we're not, except for like Mungstrap, and I only know that, well, I'm cheating, but anyway. So you don't care about anyone but the big famous cats who get a number? That's terrible. Yeah, sorry. If you don't get a number, I don't care about you. That's the moral of the story. And neither do the authors, evidently. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yes. Uh, I accept this as an alternate to giving the plot of cats because, as we'll discuss, the plot of cats is a little bit odd. So there's not really one. <laughs> there's I mean, there, there is, is but, there is, but but you wouldn't necessarily know it. Yeah, yeah. So um, okay. So I'm putting a minute on the clock, or nine minutes in honor of cats having nine lives, and then you have to name all the cats. No, I'm kidding. You just get one. All of them. Oof, yeah. tough. All of them. Who's Alonzo, Michael Fling? Who's Alonzo? That's. So, I don't know. <laughs> I he do, I know he does something. I know there's one called Alonzo. Yeah, he's like the hero. It's you know we'll, we'll talk we'll talk about it. You, Isn't Monkstrap that one? No, I thought Monkstrap was like the leader. Um, first of all, it's Monkastrap, and okay, second of all, Monkastrap <laughs> is the leader. He just doesn't get his okay, own. Yeah, he, he's like the narrator character. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Alonzo like, is like yeah. he's a featured dancer who usually covers like Tugger and a few of the other cats, but he's the one where in okay. the, in the battle with McCavity, he earns the love of Demeter by fighting off McCavity. We'll discuss if you're listening in the audience and you're like, what are they talking about? <laughs> I just, we no, will. This, is what, this is why cats is so interesting because it, there are these details. There are all these things that like, I, I genuinely don't think 
95 plus percent of the people who see it know no. any of that or no. really recognize it for what yeah. it is, which is actually very crap, very carefully crafted storytelling and character relationships and, and all that. Yes, it is definitely a piece that has more layers than are originally that appear on the surface because there's like the plot such as it is then there's like the whole story that's happening in the choreography there's like a whole other layer of some of these cats that aren't so spotlit and then there's like the whole fan backgrounds to stuff which is uh something else we'll talk about but for now let's give you a minute and um go ahead and name those cats go okay uh, Jenny Any Dots, aka the Gumby Cat. Um, you have okay, white ballerina cat. I never remember her name, but she's a big deal. Everyone likes her. Victoria. Um, and okay, sh- oh sure, okay, great. Uh, and then Rum Tum Tugger, obviously, obviously. Um, uh, and then uh, Mungo Jerry and Rumple Teaser. Uh, Bust for Jones. Um, Macavity, Grizabella. I said Monkus Strap. Uh, the Skimble Shanks, the railway cat, the cat of the railway train, my brother's favorite cat. Um, my sister's favorite and, lyric. <laughs> um, uh, da, 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 uh, who else is in the show? Um, the oh, old Deuteronomy, Dadoi, um, old Deuteronomy, uh, and I said Grisabella. The There's another old cat. cat. Oh, um, oh, oh, Gus, the cat, uh, the theater cat, Gus, yeah. the theater cat. And then, um, uh, da, 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 no, there's one major one that I know that I'm forgetting. Um, and it's major. Oh, um, Mr. Mistopheles. Oh, uh, yep, yep, Mr. Yep. Mistopheles. That's a minute. And that's, that's a minute. So I got, I did pretty okay. I did pretty okay. I think you got, I think you got all of the major spotlight cat. So the song, um, song cats. I think I, if they have a song. Yeah. I think those are I all think. the song cats. The, the, the cats who sing or are featured in a song. There's also, cause then the next tier is like Bombalarina, who's like the sex pot cat. And Demeter, who sing Macavity the Mystery Cat. Right. Yeah, but they yeah, don't yeah, have right. a song. And like, right. whatever. We, we don't have to go into the secondary cats. I think you did Those are like, well. the, I guess, I guess that's what we can say. Those are like the cats that are like nominated to go to the heavy side layer. Sort of. Yes. If, if that is what we were taking those songs to be. But we'll talk more about that as well. Because I always heard something about those songs that I have found no proof for. But I found really interesting when I heard it. <laughs> So, so uh, let's okay. uh, let's dive in so we can have as much discussion as possible. Yes, that will bring us to why God why. Why God? Why today? Where we talk about the show's big idea, what idea is governing the show, and what is the story the authors want to tell. So, at the risk of being real hot takey with my answer on the idea or theme that is central to cats, I'm gonna put it out there that cats is about humanity. And I'm going to say that because I I think one, the title is driving me to that because while, I mean, yes, it's about cats, obviously, but it is ultimately about the cats and their human personalities and their human like connections and the community that they create that is um, based in a certain level of humanity in terms of, how they relate to one each other, being kind to one another, the outsiders, the insiders, the leaders, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that is my hot takey idea for what the big idea is. I think the other, the other thing that the show absolutely explores is the like mortality of cats and kind of this huge 
life cycle type thing that you've got Grizabella at one end who is ready to be reborn into and and take one of her other nine lives. You've also got like some of the youngest cats that are being like, I think there's and McCavity and Old Deuteronomy and all these kinds of like, I think there is this kind of more mortality question that is constantly like weaving its way through. But Annika, you know the show way better and way more specifically than I do. What would you say is the the governing idea? What's what's the big what's the big theme? Well, I think, and this is another one that it took me a while to come to. I was uh, never a super cats fan when I saw cats as a kid. Um, and a credit to a woman. So let me back up a little bit and say the reason that I'm very familiar with cats is because um, pretty soon after college, I was hired to be an assistant company manager on an Australian tour of cats that was traveling around Asia, um, different countries in Asia for several months. So because of this, I was up close and personal with the show for far longer than I ever thought I would be. And it was a really fascinating glimpse at many things, including how musicals operate in different markets, um, lot, just lots of lots of different stuff. But one of the things that I found really interesting was that, you know, I was kind of dismissive of the show. I thought it was about a bunch of cats and like, you know, the dancing was really great. Uh, the set was fun. The songs were good, but you know, whatever. And then there was a time in Taiwan where we had all gone to a jade market and there was this woman who was very helpful to us and showed us around and we got our tickets to the show. Um, and she came to see the show afterwards. She called me and she said, come back. I have gifts for the whole cast. And I came back and she had this box of necklaces that she wanted me to give to everybody, but she was crying. And she said, I was so moved by this show because it's about how the family you have is not the family you're born with. It's the family you choose to have. And that had really resonated with her. And I was really, it, I mean, it was one of kind of the de defining moments in my personal dramaturgical like journey to becoming a dramaturg because I had never thought of it that way. And, and to watch this woman really, truly have this really emotional connection to this show was really just so enlightening to me. So being able to kind of see it, like get over my snark and kind of see it that way, I was like, oh, you know what? There is that in this show. I would say that this show is about community. It is about a tribe. I almost has, answered. I almost answered yep, community too. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. It's just like a Sondheim show, which are all about community. Um, it's not like a Sondheim show at all, but, um, so that is, I think it's about community. I also think it's about forgiveness. Um, so those are the themes I would say govern everything. So Annika, why don't you take us back to before and tell us about the origins of cats? We can never go back to before. Okay, so Cats is such an interesting show for many reasons, but part of it is because it is pretty much 100% written by a poet who is like one of the titanic figures of modernist poetry, one of the greatest English language poets of all time. Um, a pretty, I mean, his poetry is dark for the most part, uh, you know, and heavy. And so it's kind of fascinating that he ended up Probably, I mean, his estate has probably made the, the most money of all things from this 
from this musical about a bunch of dancing cats. But um, that poet is, of course, T.S. Eliot, Thomas Stearns Eliot. Um, and he's really a fascinating figure, kind of a problematic one. Um, but basically, he was born in uh, 1888 in St. Louis uh, to a Boston Brahmin family, a fancy New England family. I, at some point, was told that he's related to my family in some way, but I think that's probably just a lie because we all have extremely hooded eyes and comes from come from New England. Um, but he's kind of known as a British poet, mostly because he moved to England, really loved England, and eventually renounced his American citizenship. So he sort of straddles both worlds a little bit. Um, but he was, as I've said, like a, a true literary intellectual titan. Um, his most famous works are the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, which is extraordinary, which he wrote in 1915, uh, The Wasteland in 1922, um, Ash Wednesday in 1930. He wrote a series of plays. He didn't actually write a ton of poetry, which is kind of interesting for someone who has his his heft within this world. But the ones that he did really, really defined um, modernism and what modernism is, which is sort of like leaving behind a lot of the religious imagery of Victorian poetry, leaving behind verse, a lot more irony, a lot more free verse, a lot fewer rhymes. It's like a, it's a little bit more earthbound and, and um, heavy, heavier than what came before it. So as I said, um, there's a lot of debate to this day about uh, how he was as a person. Um, he has written some anti-Semitic things, said anti-Semitic things, racist things, not great to women in his life. Although there's also a really interesting counter movement from a lot of intellectuals who want to make the argument that he was not actually those things by the end of his life. He had either repented or that he was sort of saying these things ironically or because it was the time. But I just want to mention that because it is definitely an artist that we have who makes us kind of consider that art versus, versus the artist um, debate, uh, you know, and, and problematic problematic artists. It's a, it's a long, it's a long, big question. But um, aside from that, in the 1930s, Eliot uh, wrote a series of light poems about cats, and he really loved cats. He had a lot of cats, and they had names like Petty Paws, Whiskus, George Pushdragon, and notably Mungo Jerry and Rumpelteaser, both of which appear in uh, Cats the Musical. So those were actually cats of his. Um, and basically, he wrote these little poems for his godchildren. He didn't have any children himself. And he would send them every now and again to his godchildren, uh, written under the name Old Possum, which was actually Ezra Pound's nickname for him. So at a certain point, he decided that he should just published them and he published them in 1939 as Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats. And it was kind of a light thing, you know, not a, obviously a major work of poetry in any way, shape or form for kids. And from there, he's, he basically like, you know, continued living his life and then uh, died and uh, <laughs> Cats the Musical happened. Let's just transition to that. But the one thing I did want to say also about T.S. Eliot is that, um, in 2009, it was revealed that in 1937, Eliot had composed a 34-line poem entitled Cows for Children of a Friend. So there could be a sequel, my friends. There could be a sequel to Cats called Cows, also written by T.S. Eliot. Please, someone make this happen. I'd love to know. 
Famously, as a child, I used to tell people that there was a, uh, that I knew there was going to be a sequel to Cats called Dogs. And I thought I was so clever, my <laughs> little five-year-old self. I thought I was so funny. I was like, hey, everyone will believe me. Um, <laughs> well, if they do someday, I'll give you full credit. You can go back to your Listen, school and be like, I told you, I was a theatrical in the know from an early age. It. Yeah. Um. It is funny because, like, there, it, there was, a, I mean, there, what's, um, Jellicle cats and pollicle dogs, pollicle right? Pollicle yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's possible. It is in the, it is in the canon. Yes, yes except for the number peaks in the pollicles, which is the, the battle of cats and dogs, is, like, famously the worst, most hated number in the show. So, maybe T.S. Eliot was just doing dogs dirty because he was like, I want to make sure that nobody ever spotlights dogs in the same way i think i read i think i read that the reason he wrote he didn't write about dogs was because he could draw cats he couldn't draw dogs oh interesting i may be 100 percent making that up but i feel like and i i feel like as i was looking into it in research like there was something about he chose cats because he could draw them for That's his for the people he wrote the most for i'm not i'm not sure of that so you know well, it was funny though because don't, also don't at me, don't at don't me. At, but I, th- I, th- I think that's a thing. And that will bring us to putting it together. Bit by bit, putting it together, piece by piece, only way to make a work of art. Where we talk about how the show was literally put together. So Andrew Lloyd Webber um, starts in 1977, setting uh, T.S. T- Eliot's um, Possum's bo- old Possum's Book of Practical Cats. Uh, to music, thinking it could be a possible concert anthology, uh, maybe performed on TV. Uh, and he performed it at the Sinmonton Festival, which, and it's performed there in 1980. Uh, and Elliot's widow came and actually brought some unpublished pieces of Elliot's, including one titled Grizabella the Glamour Cat. Um, and Weber quickly thought this could be something that was more dramatic than he realized, and he ended up meeting with Trevor Nunn, the very, at that point, young. Um, artistic director of the RSC. Nunn was really intrigued by the project and uh, thought that, and they went about combing Elliot's work for various feline references, um, which really are, as you mentioned, all throughout his writing. So they originally thought it was going to be this, it went from, you know, concert anthology to chamber theater event with at most five people, um, much like it was in its like festival presentation. Um, And kind of in keeping with how Elliot put the book together, really just for friends, children of friends, admirers, like a very posh and English intimate kind of, uh, it kind of show basically. Um, but they quickly saw that the problem was a lack of narrative, uh, and none actually reread Alice in Wonderland a bit, um, to inspire him for how to tie all the poems and characters together, which I, I thought was very interesting and, I think he is the one who said that there are still some kind of ancestral um, archaeological type things in the show that um, remain from that kind of idea of of a fantastical Alice in Wonderland type um, uh, journey through this world, which I I think is an interesting little nugget. Um, But the discovery of Grisabella as among these, um, you know, unpublished pieces uh, really was the major twi- turning point for them. Toining point. It was the major twining. The major turning point. Stop the presses. Stop the presses. But the discovery of Grisabella um, in the unpublished pieces 
really was the major turning point. And they kind of decided that if Elliot wanted to capture this serious, touching side of uh, cats and take them quite seriously and this kind of tragic thing, it was clear they needed to do that as well in whatever they were adapting to keep that spirit, um, to keep Elliot's spirit alive in the piece. So they decided that there needed to be a progression of themes, more or less, that um, then are randomly strewn together kind of incidents. So Elliot's Widow actually ended, ended up producing even more unpublished works, which included a, um, one letter where he documented an evening um, where he proposed that the cats were to go up, up, up past the Russell Hotel, up, up, up to the Heaviside Lair. So that kind of general concept is actually T.S. Eliot's, which I, I was a fascinating find. Um, and again, among this unpublished, these unpublished works, there was also an opening poem for a longer book about cats and dogs that eventually became The Naming of Cats, uh, which was ultimately put together by Nunn and Richard Stilgo, um, the future lyricist of Phantom of the Opera. But I think the important thing really to note about its creation process is it was created very haphazardly, um, a lot of trial and error. Um, Gillian Lynn, the choreographer, of course, instrumental in putting the show together um, and uh, you know, Angela Rubber was super excited about writing a dance musical because he'd never really done that before. Um, so it was really all of this kind of crazy hoopla of things. It also was like, I mean, when you read about the creation of it, it was one of those stories where you're like at the edge of your seat because it feels like it's 95%. And I think all the creators felt this 95% likely to be a giant fiasco that they would be like laughed out of the theater industry for. Um, Andrew Lloyd Webber had put his Sidmonton home um, on under us like a mortgaged it out so he could put the his like all of his money towards it. Like it was really Cameron McIntosh advertised in the Financial Times like that people could yeah, invest for like, like 150 pounds. I mean, yeah, wild, it was a good good investment. Yeah, Judy Dench was supposed right. to play <laughs> Grizabella, and um, she snapped her Achilles tendon like a few weeks or like a few days almost. It was like very close to when they were supposed to start performances and she was the biggest name they had. So Elaine Page had to step in. I mean, it's just like one of those stories where um, they felt like the, it was going to be just a huge, 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 huge mess. There was a whole thing about costumes. They had these gorgeous costumes that were designed that like had cost a fortune and then they came in and they couldn't, nobody could, dance in them so they just basically like chucked them in the gutter and nobody knows where they ended up which was a detail that i was like please tell me more about the costumes like does somebody have like in their house like oh i was just walking around one day and there were these costumes that were just thrown on the street because if you do get in touch they're valuable but yeah so it's it's definitely one of those kind of it felt like it was going to be a disaster and then it very clearly was not a disaster well and they also, um, they also kind of said it would be impossible to have premiered this show on Broadway with the way that New York commercial theater is. Um, and that kind of because of the nature of commercial theater in London and so much of theater is uh, much more experimental because it's subsidized by um, national funding and all these things. Like it, it just is naturally a little more experimental. So, so people were a little more willing to accept something as unconventional as this uh, was. Uh, and then, of course, it was a sensation and um, made the leap across the pond. 
uh, to Broadway, where it was at the Winter Garden Theater for uh, like almost 20 years. Would it actually hit 20 years? It's an incredibly for the it was the record breaking longest running musical until Phantom beat the record um, and was just a, a you know huge hit. They did make some changes between uh, London and Broadway, notably the expansion of the Growl Tiger, the Gus and Growl Tiger um, scene segment basically uh, became a lot a lot longer and a lot more involved than it was in London because they felt they had um, an actor in the role who brought a little bit more to the table vocally. So they, they expanded that a bit. Um, but yeah, it's a smash hit. It wins like seven Tonys um, and runs forever and uh, has toured internationally featuring Annika Chapin as the assistant company manager. And, uh, you know, uh, it it has been uh, a, a one of those pieces of theater that uh, I think most everyone is at least aware of. And yes. a lot of people have seen and yes. uh, was probably recently, recently revived on Broadway uh, with the exact same initial concept with a little bit um, of altered choreography by... Uh, Andy, Andy Blankenbuehler, just a teeny bit, not really that much. And then, of course, uh, we how could we not mention the 2019 film adaptation, which probably uh, it goes will go down in history as uh, one of the all-time biggest flops, worst things ever to be put on film. Uh, yes. By many people's estimation, again, an idea I think any number of people could have said was a bad idea from the get-go, uh, and yes. uh, that film proved that it it was indeed a bad idea. It was the disaster that the original Cats never was. Um, it made all the missteps that the original production did not make. Um, it was a horrifying but for very specific reasons that I will happily talk about for a long time. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, I mean, yeah, when I did go to see it in the theaters pretty soon after it had come out. So everyone, we still weren't sure if it was as bad as people were saying or whatnot. And at the very, very end, when Jennifer Hudson is going up to the heavy side layer as um, Isabella, and then Judy Dench does the addressing of cats and, yeah, you know, which is a pretty a pretty long song, and then the final shot of the movie, like Jennifer Hudson was still on this chandelier going up to the heavy side layer, and I at that point was a little, I had had a little bit to drink, and I very audibly in this theater full of people, it was dead silent, and I very audibly didn't even think, I didn't filter, I just said, "Oh my god, she's still going!" Blackout <laughs> end of movie, <laughs> and we all, everyone collectively, still like died laughing. Because we all were just like, what fever dream have we just witnessed? I mean, that is accurate. It really was. And I maintain, I actually, I feel like there could have been a very successful movie version of Cats. But there, I mean, what what is in, what is wild to me is that, you know, Tom Hooper, the, who, Tom Hooper, who directed Cats and the Les Mis movie, like I can see why he was drawn to Les Mis because he, he clearly likes a certain style of like very stripped down, honest, raw. And like, that is all in Les Mis, like that kind of emotion, you know, the prostitution, the like poverty, the, the feelings and the 
the very human stuff in there. But like cats, if you don't understand the role that theatricality plays in cats, then you don't understand cats. And it felt to me like Tom Hooper was like, let's strip the theatricality away from cats. And I was like, you know what? That's then this is going to be very stupid. Also, how tall are those cats? In some scenes, they're like human size. Yeah, I mean, they're like, let's, I mean, they're, let's not, we could make this a whole podcast about the many flaws of the cats movie. Like, eat yourself I a just, fire, fire your agent. What, why do oh people my, have, I have mean, clothing that is sometimes they're out their bodies, but like other times they unzip their skin and then they have a, I mean, there's, there's a, a lot. Tough, a there's tough a lot. look for so, so many people. I will say though, Maybe an unpopular opinion, but I think Taylor Swift was actually fantastic in it. I think at that point, I was so, like, dazed by the whole film. I, I cannot comment on the quality of her performance. It I mean, was, I, do, I do think there are some very good people in it giving, like... Yeah, oh, I mean, like, Je Jennifer Hudson sounded amazing. I mean, there were there are things Robbie about Robbie Fairchild, that, who deserves know. a wonderful film career and is an astounding dancer. Like, the digital stuff, why would you ever add digital additions to dancers? Because then it makes it look like everything they do is digital. I mean, it took away all the human... What? Okay, okay. I'm, I'm pulling it back. I can't... We could do a side <laughs> podcast about why we have issues with that. But I will just say, R.I.P., whatever director could have done justice to cats. Like I would have paid, like if you told me Baz Luhrmann was doing Cats the movie, I'd be like, sign me up. I'm in. Because Baz Luhrmann understands theatricality and the use of like spectacle in storytelling in a way that Tom Hooper clearly does not. So there's a possibility the somewhere for some version of the Cats movie to have worked. This was definitely not it. And the audacity to make Mr. Mistopheles straight is unforgivable. That is I mean, the gayest cat that has ever been. I knew when I was but a wee child that Mr. Mistopheles was gay. But a wee child. I mean, he's and pulling rainbows. To, for him out to of be the teacups. central romance, come on, that cat is queer. Like, yeah. and just no, I'm just that was that to me was like the line crossed. I was so upset about that. He's but queer, also, I will say, he and Rumtop Tugger have a thing. I think Rumtop I mean, Tugger, Tugger is by at least, but you know, but. Also, we should say that um, there is a, a, a capture of the stage production of Cats that yes. was aired on great performances on PBS, which is a really, really great capture of the show. And I um, absolutely recommend it to any and all ages. It's a it's a wonderful capture of what um, that what the experience of seeing Cats is. Yeah, that is definitely the way to do it. Um, you kind of you, you. Yeah, it's just. Just do that. Just watch that. So, Annika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside memory? What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside. So let's dive into what is definitely the most famous and also the most complicated song in Cat's memory. Um, this is just a Titanic song in musical theater. It's been recorded something like over 600 times on different people's albums. Um, there are many, many versions of, I mean, you could just like, it's, yeah, everyone knows memory. Everyone knows memory. Um, and there's a reason that it's uh, this famous. It's certainly in the show, it's a very important moment. And also because it's a pretty great song. So um, let's dive in. But before we dive into the song itself, let's talk a little bit about the history of the song, because it's 
quite complicated and it actually does inform the analysis of the song a bit. So basically, Andrew Lloyd Webber had started to write a mini opera, and this was before he had embarked on Cats, about Puccini and Leon Cabello both writing a version of La Boheme, which was a story we talked about in the Rent podcast. That at the same time, they were both writing an adaptation of La Boheme, which is a great story, and somebody should definitely write a show about that. Um, but as part of this, he had written a melody that he intended to sound like a Puccini song, but he had not pursued the project. It was kind of sitting in the back of his mind in the trunk and uh, fade out, fade in. The team is putting together cats. They knew they needed an emotional center. Uh, they had identified Grizabella as this character because of Grizabella the Glamour Cat, which was an Elliot poem. And they knew they needed a big song for her at the end, but they had no T.S. Eliot poem for the lyrics. And obviously this would be the most dramatic song in the show. So it, it kind of actually feels like it's right that this is the one that they would have to create themselves because you know, reverse engineering something with existing poetry would be tricky. So anyway, Trevor Nunn wanted to take a stab at writing the lyrics himself. And he drew the idea of having the song be about memory from another T.S. Eliot poem called Rhapsody on a Windy Night. But they also thought it would be a good idea to ask Tim Rice to give it a try and to ask him to create a lyric. He didn't realize that Trevor Nunn was also writing a lyric. So Rice wrote a lyric that focused more on the idea that Grizabella was at the end of her life, um, looking back, and Nunn's lyrics were more focused on finding happiness and memory, but he kept revising them. And meanwhile, poor Elaine Page, who was having an affair with Tim Rice, was losing her mind because she had a slightly different set of lyrics every night as they were trying to figure out what to do with this show. And then there was some awkwardness when Tim Rice came to the show expecting to hear his lyrics and heard mostly Nunn's version, although since Nunn's version wasn't finished, there were some of his lyrics in there. Um, and so Tim Rice wrote an angry telegram saying that he understood he failed the audition and that demanded, and he demanded that all of his lyrics be removed, which they couldn't do until Nunn finished his lyrics. And so Tim Rice threatened legal action and it was all very messy and there was a lot of drama. And uh, finally, Nunn was pushed to finish the lyrics because Andrew Lloyd Webber told, them, told him that they needed to record the single urgently. Um, so it was, it like took them going to a studio and kind of spending all day in there for him to actually kind of finish this lyric. But even with that, there's two versions of the song, one for the stage and one for the studio. And they're all kind of intermushed. I mean, it's really interesting if you listen to the original London cast recording, which is a recording I actually prefer, even the dramatic version of it is using the lyrics from the studio. The Broadway one is using the dramatic stage version lyrics. So that's the one that I'm gonna list, I'm gonna go through and analyze. Um, it's Betty Buckley singing instead of Elaine Page. But it, so it's just like, you can tell it was kind of a mess. And, and when they were recording stuff, there was a lot going on. Um, but that being said, um, it is truly the 11 o'clock number. Has there ever been a more 11 o'clock 11 o'clock number? It takes place in the show after Magical Mr. Mistopheles has come and um, magically returned Old Deuteronomy and the night is almost over. So it's clear that Old Deuteronomy is about to make the, the jellical choice and choose which cat gets to go and be reborn. Um, 
So let's dive in. Let's start with this is the original Broadway cast, as I said, and there's some other stuff in here too, but we'll just go through it so you can hear everything that, that is a part of this sequence. Oh, and also another thing to note, this is not really the first time we've heard this melody. We've heard a little tiny snippet of it at the end of the first act because Grisabella has come out, kind of had a sort of shameful introduction where everyone's talking about how ruined she is. And um, she sort of attempts to sing a little bit of this. So this is technically memory repeat, reprise, which if you ever wanna be winning your Broadway trivia night and there's a question about what's the most famous reprise in history, it's probably this song. Okay, let's start. announces the cat who can now be reborn and come back to a different jellical life. Okay, so it starts out with this interesting thing, which is this innocent kitten verse. Um, Andrew Lloyd Webber talks about that in his book. This is Jemima, the character, um, she's also called Syllabub in the British version. And she's kind of one of the youngest members of this uh, tribe. She also seems to have a, a magical ability to channel um, spiritual things. Um, again, this is, you know, you're like, but she's a cat. Look, I don't know, I didn't write the rules. She has an ability to channel spiritual things. She's the one who we had in our production sing the lyrics to, uh, an earlier version of memory in the uh, language where we were, the idea is that she has this connection to the earth, et cetera. So it's appropriate that she's the one who's singing this little verse, which does seem to be a little bit channeling what Grisabella is gonna be talking about later, but also is clearly talking about the dawn is coming. She's excited for flowers, beauty, all of these things that she's singing about. And she says this line about uh, the rose fades, um, so she's kind of emotionally setting us up to, to get the arc of Grisabella, which is like, there were flowers, there's youth, and they also will pass away eventually. They will fade into something different, but also that the dawn is coming. And then, of course, we get this monk strap sort of reminding us that, that uh, there's going to be a jellical choice made. And I'm just going to talk over this because this is a little bit backup uh, for Grisabella coming back on stage. All of the cats are shunning her and hissing at her and scratching at her and um, doing their horrible thing that they do to her uh, every time she appears. 
And that's interesting music. And it's a little bit different, actually, in the Broadway version than the original British one. Um, the British one has a little swing to it. So it's almost like they're illustrating uh, what these cats think of Grisabella, that she's sort of a fallen woman. Um, she was a glamour cat. There's a lot of interesting, weird stuff about sort of this idea that, I mean, it's a little slut, Jamie. Let's just call it that. You know, that she went off and partied too hard and... Um, didn't keep with these, I don't know, morals of the Jellicle tribe or whatever, but like there's the sense that she is a loose woman, a fallen woman. Um, she was kind of some version of a cat prostitute party girl. So in the British version, you hear that a little bit more in the music, that there's a kind of this sort of seediness to that um, music for her. And of course, either way, this one, we don't really have that seediness, but we have um, that it's a little more dark, it's a little more dirty, it's a little creepy, but it's got a little bit of that low read in there. There's something more emotional here. after that darker, more fraught music, we get a melody that kind of refutes that other music. Uh, the darkness, the seediness is, is gone. This is major key. It's open-hearted. It's a little bit melancholy. There's a little bit of hope for it. It's quite lovely. It's immediately captivating. We, we know that this character is not the character you would expect from her entrance music right? That she's, there's more purity to her and more emotion and more to pity really than um, the kind of shameful darkness of this previous music. Um, and her melody is, is so simple. It's keeping to a small range of notes. It's not overly complicated or tricky, just like her. She's not particularly manipulative. She's not particularly um, complex you know she's she's treated by all these other cats as someone to shun and we've seen kind of a variety of well not a variety we basically only have McCavity as a sort of villainous cat in here but what she sounds like is very different from what you would imagine um someone might sound like that they are all treating them the way that they treat her um there's also an interesting thing here where she's she's singing about herself but in the second person um, like she's telling someone to do this who isn't herself. It's kind of poignant because all the other cats get introduced by other cats. They sort of get these celebratory songs, but she only got that Grisabella, the glamour cat about, you know, her, her tragic past, basically her sordid past. So she basically has to be her own narrator here. She's really her only friend. She doesn't have another cat to introduce her. And it has the secondary purpose of, feeling like she's begging the other cats around her to do this with her and to try to understand her. Um, so it's kind of working on a few different levels here and all in that kind of poetic voice of the Elliot sort of. Um, interestingly, this verse is different than the one that's from the studio recording, which is about midnight and the moon smiling alone. 
Um, this is much more thematically on the nose. They've just talked about Old Deuteronomy choosing a cat to be reborn. Grisabella is singing about finding a new life by entering her memories. So this could be seen as something a little rebellious. She knows she'll never be chosen to be the, the cat that gets to ascend to the heavy side layer. Um, so she has to find her own rebirth in the joy of her memories. It's kind of a coping mechanism. It's a way to deal with the, the very real horrors of what her life is, which is that she's trying to get back to these people who were her people and now just shun her. Um, but honestly, I kind of prefer the single verse. I think it's a little better when it's not super on the nose about going back into your memories and finding happiness there. Also, it's about to be taken care of in the next verse. So there's my, there's my opinion. Um, but incidentally, Tim, Tim Rice's lyrics for this verse uh, were streetlights and the darkness between them like the good and bad sides of a life almost done. Shake the memory of my passions returning to me, none forgotten, no, not one. Um, and frankly, I can understand why none wanted to go with something a little different and slightly more hopeful version of Grisabella. It really ups the drama of the song, although there's a little bit of skepticism that he also didn't, I mean, that he basically wanted to be the lyric writer of a song that was going to be, you know, triple platinum, which, you know, also probably had something to do with it. But there is something about positioning Grisabella not as this person who's looking back at her life and assessing it, but rather uh, the Grisabella that we're going to get here, who's a little bit more active um, and a little bit easier to care for. So uh, let's keep going. Memory So here we really get the thematic heart of the song, the idea that Grisabella with her sad, sad truth here alone, um, old, you know, her coat is torn and she's just kind of a mess. She's trying to find joy in her memories of when she was beautiful and young and things were happy. Um, I guess you could say that the first verse is about the entering the portal of memory. And this is the one about uh, what she's finding there. Um, I don't know. I still feel like the other first verse would be better. And then you could really hit it on the nose with this one. But either way, there's something uh, that you really have to love about this character who has such a sad life with all the cats mean to her all the time. But she's she's finding joy. She's actively trying to find joy in remembering times when she knew what happiness was and that's that's kind of a heartbreaking line too because it's not even like I was happy then she says I was beautiful then and she says she knew what happiness was happiness is so far away from her she can't even remember it clearly it's it's like a few steps beyond back to that younger version she's trying to think back to when that was something that she was familiar with so that's kind of heartbreaking Ends of smoky days, the stale, cold smell of morning. 
have that verse about how she's sort of psyching herself up to remember a time when she knew happiness she kind of gets pulled back down this this sounds much more like Elliot in this very bleak dis- description of the morning and what the the morning sounds like it sounds like uh, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock a little bit it's a harsh world um, she's trying to find refuge in these memories, but here it feels like she's getting a fresh wash of anguish. You know, she's actively trying to pull herself out of this, but she can't always help it. She's just overwhelmed by the idea that, you know, another night is going to be over. Another year is going to be gone. Um, and another day is going to happen. And it's just going to be the same harsh world. Daylight. I must wait for the sunrise. I must think of a new life. And I mustn't give in. When the dawn comes, tonight will be a So now after she sort of had that moment of being pulled back into the reality of like, oh, this is a terrible morning and everything is harsh and, and it's just going to be another day and another night of her life, her dark life. Um, she kind of pulls herself back in check and reminds herself that she should find hope in a new day and some new life um, that she can dream of and that this sucky day will also be a memory um, soon that she can kind of keep behind her, which is both hopeful and a little bit poignant because it's kind of a reminder that memories are both good and bad and not all of her memories are happy memories. There are also a lot of memories probably like this one. Um, She's fighting so hard to find some hope in her life. And, you know, she says, I mustn't give in. I must think of a new world, new life, and I mustn't give in. Um, And there's something about that that is so moving. And I think that ultimately is what makes this song so resonant. Um, it's, it's not just a cat talking about her life. It's, it's a, it's an old person who is suffering, trying to claw her way through the sadness of her world to find some hope and joy in some way to make her life bearable. And she really doesn't give up. I mean, the fact that she's here singing the song at all is that, you know, she just keeps coming around to try again to get back in with these mean cats and she doesn't succeed, but she keeps doing it. And there's something about that that's just really beautiful. interesting because you get a little bit of just music and the the theme the melodic theme of the song but not her singing it and it allows us time to kind of just watch her as not the the carrier of the song but it's kind of steeped in it at the same time you know she can't always 
carry the melody. She sometimes has to just stop. And we're hearing all this music around her and we're, we're actually watching all these cats. The staging of this song in this scene is that all these cats have turned away from her at the beginning after they've hissed and clawed at her and they're none of them are even looking at her. Um, and then slowly they, they start to turn one by one and, and look at her. Um, but this is not there yet. They haven't all turned yet. This is just her kind of stewing and she doesn't see that. She's still just like stewing in the, in the sadness of this. Song like the room, the trees in the summer, endless masquerading. Like a flower as the dawn is breaking, the man. cruel to cut it off right before that thing when you all know what's coming um so this is the same younger kitten from the very beginning of the song um who both is the one who seems to be drawn to grizabella and able to channel her memories um also clearly a cat who's in the fold who's a member of this group who is able to experience happiness without all this trauma uh, around it and and none of the darkness that grizabella has now lived through um and this is a really smart thing to do at this moment in the song. Um, it's basically illustrating uh, those happy memories that Grizabella is desperately trying to get to, um, to give herself a way to move forward. So in some ways it's kind of feels like it's, it's her memories being acted out in front of her, um, but also it is a, a different cat actually singing this. So um, is Jemima cheering Grizabella on? Is, she, is this a kindness that she's giving to Grizabella? Is she thinking of her own happy memories? Or is this something where she like, for the moment she's able to kind of become young Grizabella in Grizabella's memory? Who knows, it doesn't really matter. Um, having them sing together brings this to life, this place that Grizabella has willed herself to be. Um, and then it's such a beautiful thing to have the younger kitten fall out so that the last line that Grizabella sings, which the memory is fading, um, is only her own. You know, she's tried so hard to get herself to this place where she can find a joyful memory and bring that and, and find some hope for herself. And she manages to have this one little tiny moment of beauty and flowers and youth. And it lasts like two seconds, you know, already the memory is fading. So it makes sense that now we are pushed to... Yay, 
obviously this is the the real moment of this song this huge note which the music just you can just feel it swelling up to this major major note that this you know the singer is inevitably killing here um so it's very impressive to listen to but it's also it's so thrilling emotionally from where we've come in this song you know it's a very contained song. She has the simple melody. There's only a moment or two that allows it, that she allows herself to kind of get a little bit swept up in emotion. And then we get this little moment where she's able to go back in that memory. And then it's taken away from her so quickly. And then she just unleashes all of these feelings that she's trying to get past really, you know, she's not trying to be anguished. She's not trying to be sad, but and she's not trying to beg, but she cannot help it. And of course, this this just builds into this massive, massive touch me. Um, and it's hard to sing this, it, you know, with this, the bigness of it and actually be able to hear the lyric. But it doesn't even matter because it's what she's saying. You know, touch me. It's so easy to leave me. Um, and actually, that phrase continues. It's so easy to leave me all alone with the memory of my days in the sun. But it doesn't matter because it's so easy to leave me is itself a really heartbreaking thing you know that for a moment she's begging you know touch me like it's so easy to leave me she's she's a cat who has been left so many times you know she's been rejected so many times um and then she has that great line uh if you touch me you'll understand what happiness is which i think has as a double meaning there's both if you touch me you'll understand the value of happiness because now what we've seen is a person for whom happiness is something she has to try to access in her memories you know for the young kittens who don't necessarily know how difficult that state of being can be at a certain point in your life you know she is living proof of the value of happiness how precious it is and she is that example for all these other cats but at the same time i think she's just saying a very simple you know begging a plea for touch me please touch me she's so alone and twice in this show she's done this thing where she kind of senses that a cat might be willing to to be open to her and she she kind of crunches down and puts her hand back in the way oh excuse me her paw back um in the hopes that someone might touch her because no you know none of these cats are who are all mushing all up on each other in the jellicle ball and stuff she's she's completely alone um so i think there's also that that if if a cat was willing to just simply touch her and give her that kind of physical comfort they would see how happy that could make her that would mean so much to her that that they would be transforming her life in such a meaningful way um but this last line is such a killer because nobody really has done that yet i mean spoiler alert they're about to but she sings this plea this huge huge plea about like just don't ignore me don't don't leave me alone just please give me this tiny tiny thing and then the last line which is much more contained and down to earth again is look a new day has begun and i think what you can read that as is her thinking that this has failed you know that she's she's 
open her her heart enough to say, please, 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 like somebody let me back. And then she's back on the, well, you know what, like tomorrow is another day. Um, you know, maybe, maybe next time she's still going to try to fight for this little sliver of hope that she has managed to hang on to in her sad life. And there's something so heartbreaking about that because she's just, she's doing the thing that she does, you know, she's doing the thing where she's against all odds, trying to, to find hope for herself. And there is something that is so beautiful about that, that I think this song, even though it's about a slut shamed cat, um, has really resonated with so many people because it, it captures that emotion of that sort of desperation to just not be alone and also to just try to find a little sliver of something that you can hold on to when things are very dark. Also, because I mean, that note is just a big killer. So, you know, it's a visceral thrill to hear people sing like that. And also, you know, they've, they've couched it emotionally beautifully in this song. So yay memory. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments. How do you solve a problem like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the issues with cats, both internal and external. All right. I feel like there's only one big issue with cats, and it's that to 95% or 99% of people who see it, they don't understand the story because there isn't a story um, mm -hmm. by most people's estimation. I I will say I had a, my mom was a huge fan of cats and really liked cats and had seen it in New York. And like, so I was raised on cats in a certain way. And she knew that the story was they're all kind of waiting for someone to go to the heavy, you know, there's someone's going to be picked to go to the heavy side layer to get a new life. Um, and so that's how I've always kind of known that that is the bare bone kind of narrative that um, holds cats together. But I guess like, I, I've always kind of thought personally that like the moments that cats is good it is excellent and amazing and the moments the cats is not good are terrible and i, I can't stand them and I, I in coming in researching the show getting to know a little bit more about it, its creation and the process of that and the intention behind some things i have my respect for it has grown uh in this process but i still don't know that any of that really transcends to an audience that sees it so i Annika, I guess, can you speak to that a little bit? Like what, in terms of its lack of narrative, in terms of like its entire kind of scope, like, you know, why do you think Cats is so divisive? I guess is maybe the question. It is, is it actually a plot? Is there actually a plot? Because I kind of, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think there is a little bit of a plot. I, certainly in terms of what you said, that is the, the, the spine of it. It's basically that this tribe of cats comes together once a year for this ball that they do. And then one cat is chosen for this honor, which is to go to the heavy side lair and become reborn as another cat. Um, and then they all kind of perform. It does, it's a little, I mean, I think the thing is the rules are very unclear beyond outside of that, you know, like are they auditioning to be chosen as the cat that, that goes? Are they just enjoying themselves? And then old, I mean, old Deuteronomy makes this choice. There's a little bit about this other thing that goes along with 
with McCavity, who's a villainous cat who's kind of attacking them. Um, there's Grizabella, who has been shunned by this uh, group of cats at for kind of being a party girl, basically, and then is is accepted back into the group um, and chosen to go to the heavy side layer. Even though I've always been like Gus, the theater cat is so old. <laughs> That like I'm sure there's like this. I always want a moment of like Gus the theater cat being like, "Oh great, I get to do this for another year." Like, uh, um, so old, so, so old. old. And I will say, except for reading the, I read um, the original Broadway. Gus has a diary journal that he kept during rehearsals that he published that I, I read, and I was I grew in a lot of appreciation for Gus and Growl Tiger and what all that is. But I think it's so boring. What, the Gus Theater Cat? Yeah, Gus is boring. I want I to mean, like Gus the Theater Cat, and I'm just kind of bored by him. But It's, a, anyway, it's an extremely slow number. But yeah, so that that is the overarching general plot. Do I think you could get away with that plot if these characters were humans and not cats? I do not think so. I think... Part of what allows you to go with this skeletal uh, a structure is a natural thing that happens when you come into this space. And I think a lot of the credit to the success of this show goes to Trevor Nunn, who had this vision of like, you know, you, you are in the space, the junkyard set. It, it famously comes out over the audience it's all around you, you know, it's it's not like a normal kind of proscenium thing where the action is very separated. The cats come out into the audience in the beginning with their eyes, you know, they come out in the intermission, they interact with the audience. I think all of that creates absolutely a situation in which the show, I think that's largely the reason that the show has become that successful, because when you watch, especially kids interact with cats like you you are magically bypassing the stuff the thing that normally happens with audience participation which is that weird kind of like thing where you know that they are an actor playing a role and they know that they are an actor playing a role but they're playing a role and they're going to come and talk to you pretending they're that person and you have to decide if you're going to talk to them like you know that they're an actor or not and you feel kind of weird and foolish and uncomfortable like having someone in a unitard come up to you and pretend to be a cat like, you don't have to talk to them. You can just kind of act with them. And that bypasses the brain and goes straight to some sort of visceral theatrical experience that I think allows people to just get in touch with that kind of, like, magical thing about theater that is what they love. So so anyway, so that is to say, I think that they were very smart to give it this basic a plot. Do I think that the show has to be as long as it is? No, I think it could very successfully be one act. I have figured that out exactly how you would do that. All you would basically have to do is add more cats to the first act, have Grizabella come out. She does kind of a fake out memory at the end of the first act after the Jellicle Ball. And then act two, you go to these other cats. I think you just don't do that. You have the cats mostly in act one. The Jellicle Ball is the big 11 o'clock number. She comes out. Instead of doing a fake out, she sings memory and it's the end of the show pretty much. That would work just fine. So, so yes, I think there is a little bit of plot. Um, as much plot as you probably need. And I think other than that, I think they're relying on sort of a basic theatrical magic um, 
to to just make you entertained by one number after another. I think it kind of successfully turns off the part of your brain that's like, but what's happening here? You know, because you're just like, ooh, fun. Now they're doing this. Now they're dancing. Now this is happening. Like, there's think, a lot going yeah, on. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, because there is a blatant theatricality to it that I think is just enchanting in its own way. And I, I mm. would also agree that Trevor Nunn is the secret ingredient here that I think makes the show actually work. And I, and I think to a lot of people who even directors and people in theater, you know, I think a lot of people would be like, well, what does a director do in cats? Like it's all dance. It's all choreography. And I, I think he very expertly, you're right, creates an environment, but also creates character relationships. Like we've talked about in, you know, earlier, but creates character relationships lands the text in a certain way so that the so that everyone feels very grounded and real so it which allows the kind of heightened reality that we live in and i think there is a lot and like structure and pacing and all that kind of stuff i think is all him and i think that is really really un undersung generally when it comes to cats but also one of the more nuanced and difficult things about directing that is that is not often like praised or just people don't quite understand like that 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 is just as instrumental to the show's success as any other thing anything that Julian Lynn brings to the table you know they they are very yeah. like co-equal collaborators they're just in very different ways yeah, and it's funny because I, I think that they are excellent collaborators. And it's interesting because when you read about the process, there was a little bit of tension, it seems, because Jillian Lynn was also someone who directed things herself. So I think there was that sense of like, you know, who was really the person in charge ultimately right at the beginning. But what I think really works about their combination is that Trevor Nunn really effectively looked at the sort of macro of it, of what your experience is from the moment you walk into the theater. Um and Jillian Lynn was creating something from the inside out where it's like, if you work on a production of this show, what you very quickly learn is that it is taken very seriously. Like there are, th there are activities that all these the dancers do where they like have to make their own version of a tale and choose a perfume for their tale that they've made for their character and then you turn off all the lights in the rehearsal room and you, you're walking, you know, you're crawling around in the dark trying to identify people based on their scent. Like, there's stuff that might seem absurd from the outside, but what it does is mean that none of your, none of your actors are allowed to dismiss the reality of, like, you are cats. This is a real thing. That is a very, like, there's no irony. There's no tongue in cheekness at all at any point about what the process is. And actually the Jellicle Ball, which is an amazing dance number, like there's a whole plot that happens in the Jellicle Ball that Victoria is the white cat who's young and innocent. And she's new to this over the course of the Jellicle Ball. I'm not kidding. This is in the choreography. She is deflowered by one of the cats that has been like chosen for her by old Deuteronomy. And then there's a cat orgy, you know, but like they've actually taken like bits of cat behavior and woven it through this piece. It, some of it has gone to places that are a little bit strange for me. I mean, one of the things I heard when I was working on the tour was one of the actors came up to me and said, well, 
Do you know why Demeter is so scared of the cavity? Because Demeter is the first cat that comes out. She's kind of one of the younger female cat who sings. Um, and she's very skittish about Macavity. She's very afraid of Macavity, um, who's, of course, the villainous cat who is magical, uh, but not, but uh, Idris Elba. It's Idris Elba in the movie. Bad choice, Idris Elba. But, and I was like, no, why is Demeter scared of Macavity? And she was like, because Macavity raped her. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, this, there is rape backstory to cats? Okay, and I don't know, honestly, if that came from the Jillian Lynn original production backstory that was created, or if fans have added that over time, because fan, there is a very, very strong fan community for the show, and they are very, very active in terms of, like, the backstories of these cats, the histories of these cats, but it, there is so much going on behind the scenes of this, which I think... You don't necessarily see a lot of that on stage. Um, it's not made very overt, which I think is probably a good thing. But but the fact that it is there means that you cannot you there you know the difference when you sit in that theater between like yay good dancing and good dancing that has actually like a dramatic truth to it on at some level. And I think. That is largely due to Jillian Lynn. So, so between these two things, your experience as an audience member coming into this magical world where you're going to be interacting with these cats um, and this kind of like story that you're, you're aware of on stage, even if you're not necessarily overtly aware of what it is, they really kind of hit a sweet spot. It's a really interesting combination of things. Although the other thing I will say is that the one thing that I had heard about this show was that at some point... The concept was that you would get different cats every night. That the reason it was so episodic was because you might come and see Skimble Shanks and Rum Tum Tug for one night, and then another night it might be Gus the Theater Cat and Jelly Lorem, um, which I thought was such a cool idea. Uh, and wow, would that be an interesting experience. And I had been told that, that they couldn't do it because it was cost prohibitive and way too difficult. But also I have never been able to find any proof of this beyond what I was told. It's not in Andrew Legwipper's book. It's not in a lot of books I've seen. So um, I hope that is true because that would be amazing, but it might be a lie. But wouldn't that be cool? It would be very cool. I would be into it. And that will bring us to We Go Together. We go together like Where we try to identify what show or shows are the closest relative to Cats. So I, my answer, I think there are a lot of things. It's probably, I mean, it's so out there and so different from so many other things. But I'm going to say the show that it most resembles is Hair. Interesting. And I'm saying that because I think the, like, tribal aspect and the kind of, there aren't, there's not really a whole lot of story, but there's kind of a sentence story that we're following. And it's, you know, it's not really hair is not entirely like character exploration in the way that cats is. So I think, but I think generally in shape and structure and in kind of feeling, it's obviously not dance, you know, hair is not dancey, but hair was the first thing I thought of because of like the tribal aspect of the Jellicoe cats. Um, but what about you? What do you, what do you think, what shows do you think are closest to cats? Well, I love that answer. Um, that is not what I was thinking, although I did think that our, our teaser about the yak hair, I was like, either people are going to think it's cats or hair. 
I was thinking chorus line for similar reasons. I mean, that's the um, other, that was the other one that was kind of flirting yeah. with its dance, its character, but we all, yeah, I also yeah. just said it for assassins. So I felt like I should, I know, it, I know. But, I yeah. didn't want to say it either. I'm like, this <laughs> podcast is just becoming like how everything is like chorus line, which is right, like right, right. nothing and <laughs> everything. But yeah, I mean, in terms of that sort of like, you know, kind of a superstructure, uh, obviously a lot stronger, stronger with chorus line, but similar idea here. I mean, that kind of an audition, if you want to take all of those different um, moments sure. there, a little bit episodic, pulling you through this very kind of specific group of people, a very specific kind of time and place, sort of. That's what I would say. I mean, I think that it, it's interesting to me that those are both such massively successful shows because I think conventional wisdom would, would have you say that like audiences prefer a much more conventional storytelling method. Episodic is not something that's usually considered uh, an advantage to a show, but I do think it's really interesting that both of these shows, which were so successful from the get go have that in common and, you know, and hair, which was another groundbreaking one. I mean, yeah, I think it's really a fascinating thing. And that will bring us to our favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things. Where we talk about some of our favorite things about cats. Um, so normally, the first question would be, what is your favorite character in cats? But I'm going to say, Annika, who is your favorite cat in cats? My favorite cat in cats is the Ramtub Tucker. Okay. Great, a great answer. Yep. Um, if you offer him pheasant, he'd rather have grouse. He'd rather have grouse. Um, I think he is the funnest to watch. I love characters that have, first of all, I mean, he's just like one of the sexiest characters on in the musical theater canon, which is kind of disturbing when you think that he's a cat. And I'm sure that confused many young children with their uh, sexual feelings towards a cat. <laughs> You say Annika Chapin, no, noted fan of bestiality. Noted fan of me. <laughs> He's unapologetically sexy, which is always really fun to watch. And so confident. And that is really, really a delight. So I love Tugger. And I think the song is great, too. Not my favorite, but I also like the song. What about you? What's your favorite character? Or who's your favorite cat? So we, um, this has been long teased uh, for Miss Chapin. Um I, my favorite cat is Bustopher Jones. Really? I love, from the time that I was a, a, a child, I loved Bustopher Jones. I loved Bustopher Jones. Um, and I was always upset because I only had the Selections album. I didn't have the complete, and Bustopher Jones is not on the Selections album. Not deemed important enough. Um, but I always loved him as a kid. I just thought he was so entertaining and fun. And he has that, like, well, now, now I know from, like, a, adult and being an adult and learning more cultural things like he has a very like burlington birdie kind of old um english hall music hall yes. type like flavor that's really what he is i didn't know that at the time um obviously uh, well not, maybe not obviously but as a you know wee lad i did not as a wee lad i didn't know um but yeah i love buster jones i think he's so fun and cute and entertaining and like it's i don't know i'm i'm into him he is definitely a fun cat Okay, what's your favorite song in Cats? I love the Jellicle Ball. I uh, think... Is a, yeah, that's a great answer. It's a great answer. Yep, because I was I was debating, because I 
really like Mungo Jerry and Rumple Teaser. I love Spindle Shanks. That's mine. Mungo uh, Jerry yes. and Rumple Teaser is my favorite. It's so fun. <laughs> it's so fun. Um, I love it. I it's absolutely so love it. Good. It's really, really good. Do 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 do. It's really good. Um, but I there is something that is so thrilling about watching the Jellicle Ball. Um, not only because of the dancing too, like listening to it, it is great. Oh yeah, music. Yeah, and it really it is. is just it goes through such a journey too. There's the moments which, of course, all have names and all have like things that are happening in the in the in the moment in the storytelling. But like, it is such a joy to just be in a theater and watch these amazing dancers dancing their faces off for that number. And I just. I loved it every single time. It was oh, it's just always a joy to watch the Jellicle Ball, and I, I really think it's fun to listen to, and I love it. So that's my choice. I think that's a great answer. I I would couple that with I actually really love the Overture. I think that Overture. I think it's a really thrilling piece mm-hmm. of music. Um, they're very similar, like in in kind of overlappy in certain ways. But I I almost answered the Overture. But yeah, Mongo Jerry and Rumble Teaser is my favorite song in the score. I I really love it. It's such, I, I, I can't really explain it. It just is. No, it's super fun. It's I so love like, it. It's super fun. Yeah. And it, it feels like it's a, a, a different flavor from the other songs because it's like tricky. It's like you don't hear a lot of like sort of mysterious and scampy Andrew Lloyd Webber. But like it builds so nicely and like yeah. it does have a rum, like a rousing kind of finish. It's it's really, really Mungo Jerry Rumpel teaser. Um, special shout out also to um, McCavity though, which is um, yeah. a great, it's a great number to like belt in the car. It is. It is. It is a fun number. It's a little weird when you think about <laughs> the uh, story that I mentioned earlier that is assigned to it, to why these cats find him so sexy, but you know, sure. We can parse that out at a different time. So what is your favorite miscellaneous thing about cats? And I, and I'm sure this could go any number of ways for you because of your storied history with the show. When I got back from the tour, I was talking to my friend, Graham Rowett, who's a very talented performer himself. And uh, we were talking about the just life on the road and all that stuff. And I said at one point that I had been watching the TV series Firefly, which was a Joss Whedon show with one of the cast members from the show that that's what we would do. Like after the show is we would go back and watch like an episode of firefly. Um, and he said, Oh, was it rumple teaser? And I was like, yeah, yeah. Rumple teaser was the one who introduced me to the show. I would watch it with the girl who played rumple teaser. And he goes, Oh, rumple teasers are always into sci-fi. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, What? So I love that because, like, first of all, correctly, he identified that Mashana, who was our rumple teaser, it was, was and is a huge sci-fi fan. But also, like, I love that that is now enough of a thing with cats as well. That, like, not only is there the story that you get in the show and then all this, like, internal story stuff that you're not necessarily getting. But, like, this has been a show that's been around for long enough now that so many performers have been in it that, like... You can say something like rumble teasers love sci-fi and that could be a thing that's like, oh yeah, of course. But like, it's just established that, you know, that, and I just, I love that so much. So that is, that is my favorite miscellaneous thing. Although sci, uh, special credit also goes to the 
the show was such a huge mega hit at the time that there's like a lot of weird videos online of it. And there's a music video of Terrence Mann, the original Rum Tum Tucker, truly a music video dancing to that number. And he's like a janitor in the theater and the ladies turn into sexy cats. I mean, it's, it's so wild and weird. So that's my follow-up, but number one is sci-fi rumble teaser. That's a great, great, the both great, great mentions. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say my favorite miscellaneous thing is uh, the climax of memory and that big touch me is so moving and so powerful. And I am going to lay it my cards out here and say it has never sounded better than Stephanie J. Block at the Muni in St. Louis in 2010. This is before I worked at the Muni. This is before I, like, I, I found this on YouTube, like, a decade ago, there's some like pirate of someone in the audience with a cell phone camera that filmed Stephanie J. Box singing memory. It is incredible. Um, and I, I follow us on our social media because I will post the video because it's, uh, it's just that moment. It's incredible, incredible singing. And that brings us to our penultimate segment, Corner of the Sky. where we talk about this show's place in the musical theater canon i am gonna say i think cats is hugely important for any number of reasons but i think it's also one of the first like it it has such a big international presence because it's not dependent on language and it is such a spectacle i think it kind of transforms what the Broadway audience is and who it is in a very touristy type way. And I think that's really important to note. And I I know there are other shows that are extremely international um, that we've talked about on the, on the program, but I think uh, that is one of its kind of unique oddities beyond everything that we've talked about in the sense that it is an entirely dance musical. It is wildly out there in terms of what we considered standard Broadway fair. And yet it runs longer than, you know, any show in Broadway history up to that point. Um, And certainly, you know, is one of those shows that everyone kind of knows uh, in the world, not just in the theater world, but in the world. But Annika, what do you think is Kat's corner of the sky? Well, it's, it is a fascinating one because I feel like something about Cats was even more of a phenomenon than anything before it, you know, like that t-shirt with the logo was the number two t-shirt across the world uh, after the hard rock cafe. Like everybody had that t-shirt. Everybody knew that logo. Um, Well, the, yeah, the iconography certainly is, is. Yeah. Yeah. That I think, I think this show actually kind of managed to, become uh not just a theater hit but sort of a cultural phenomenon um in a way that i can't really think of a show before it that did what it managed to do really internationally is what i'm thinking as well and again i mean this for me is because i do have a slightly different perspective on it having having been in international markets with it but you know the same idea i'd like it's hard to think of another show before this show where you could walk around somewhere in China with a with the logo of the the you know the poster of the show on a t-shirt and people would know what it was like it really became a product very very quickly and a phenomenon 
very, very quickly. And that I think was new. And I, I think subsequent shows have managed to do that um, to the same degree, sort of, you know, but that was really the one that I think was the one that broke the mold in that way. Well, and I think, yeah, credit to the creators too, that they're, it, it transcends language. It transcends a written language, both in the music, the staging, character development story. You can follow cats as much as you could in any language, uh, you yeah. know, that it wasn't your own. So I think that's a credit to, in a nerdy way, good direction and choreography and um, storytelling by the entire creative team, including, of course, Andrew Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And up next, cows. Well, on that note, Annika, that wraps up our deep dive into cats. But uh, first, you have to give us a clue about what comes next. What comes next? Where, where Annika gives us a clue about the next show we'll be putting in the spotlight. So, Annika, what is our clue for the next episode? For our next episode, we are going to be talking about a show that, although, spoiler alert, it did become very successful. It was originally thought that it would be a big old turkey. And famously, someone walked out at intermission when it was out of town and said, no legs, no jokes, no chance. A classic clue for a classic musicale. And that is where we will leave you. I'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. This podcast has been a presentation of Goodspeed Musicals, produced by the artistic staff and edited by me, Michael Fling. This podcast would also not be possible without the generous support of the Sennheiser Electric Corporation, the Burry Frederick Foundation, Webster Bank, and the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. If you enjoyed the show and would like to financially support Goodspeed, please visit goodspeed.org. See you next time.